And it, it just becomes this sort of competition inside offices that is centered around precarity. This idea that your job isn't necessarily safe because someone can come in and do it better than you. That you could at any moment be downsized by your company because what they privilege is growth, profits, shareholder value. There's no real like loyalty there. Welcome to Freedom Matters, where we explore the intersection of technology, productivity, and digital well-being. I'm your host, Georgie Powell, and each episode we'll be talking to experts in productivity and digital wellness. We'll be sharing their experiences on how to take back control of technology. We hope you leave feeling inspired, so let's get to it. This week, we're in conversation with Charlie Warzel. Charlie writes the newsletter Galaxy Brain for The Atlantic, where he is a contributing writer. Before that, he was writer-at-large for the New York Times opinion page and a senior technology writer at BuzzFeed News. Most recently, he has co-authored Out of Office with his partner Anne-Helen Peterson. The book combines groundbreaking reporting and the couple's own experiences after they made the decision to leave their desk jobs in New York City for Montana. They describe how workers and employees across America and around the world are finding new ways of working that make people happier and more productive and make companies more profitable. Today we'll be discussing what's broken with how we currently work, how flexibility has historically benefited organisations and not employees, why Gen Z are looking for a new relationship with work and how to rethink the office. Charlie, welcome to the Freedom Matters podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Fantastic. So I want to dive in straight away by talking about your book. I really enjoyed it because it's like a blueprint. It's a guide for the future of work. I think what I found really interesting about it was it's, it's quite scathing and critical of how we currently work. And so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your understanding of the problems with work today and what you think we need to fix with the future of work. Sure. The, the way we like to think about the book is we didn't want it to be too self-helpy. So we, we were thinking of it like a map, right? Like a roadmap, which is mm-hmm. we don't tell you how to get there, but we show all the routes. In terms of it being broken, I, I want to say that like this isn't an anti-work book. Myself and my partner, uh, Anne Helen Peterson, who wrote it, like we we enjoy working. We get a lot of you know satisfaction out of our work. We believe in the dignity of work and that people want jobs. And we believe also from our 700 plus interviews we did that people people like to work to, mm-hmm. to some degree, right? Mm-hmm. What they don't like is sort of what has become of work, the ways in which our obsession with efficiency and productivity have essentially caused us to flatten and collapse our lives into these one-dimensional elements. A, a good example of this, I think, is, is the ways in which we have become so obsessed with growth and productivity that as a work culture broadly celebrate the people who can sacrifice the most of their selves and their lives for their job and for their work output. And what that ends up creating is a two-facedness in a lot of organizations. And, And the best example of this is this phrase that gets used a lot now, because a lot of corporations want to show that we believe in a healthy work-life balance. They'll say things like, feel free to take some time if you need it. And feel free to take some time if you need it is a sort of you know insidious uh, phrase. It basically says, if you are the type of person who requires rest or requires a break, 
you can do that, but that you will be seen as that person. Yeah. And there will be other people inside your organization that don't quote unquote need it. And what that really means is who are willing to make bigger and more intense sacrifices. And it's a really toxic element because it then creates this very strange in-company competition to see who can be the person who can sacrifice the most. Because work culture has been so polluted with this idea of constant and perfect productivity, that a lot of the managers and people who say, feel free to take some time if you need it, they don't take the time. So they don't model those types of behaviors. And it, it just becomes this sort of competition inside offices that is centered around precarity. This idea that your job isn't necessarily safe because someone can come in and do it better than you. That you could at any moment be downsized by your company because what they privilege is growth, profits, shareholder value. So if there's a downturn and there's no real like loyalty there. And I think what it's created is this feeling by people that they're an expendable like resource, that they, mm-hmm. they can just be ground down. And then when they're finally ground down enough, they'll be cast aside for a fresh batch of the resource. And yeah. I think it, it creates a really cynical, really awful view. It, it makes people, you know, uh, feel disrespected and, and honestly not motivated to go out and do their best work. It, it, when you're working out of fear or this sense of great precarity, it doesn't produce the best type of work. A lot of people go into the workforce and are immediately confronted by all these forces that I've just described. And they don't, you know, have any frame of reference. And they're as vulnerable as they can be because they're very young in their careers. So they learn how to, you know, perform within this sort of ecosystem. Mm. And what ends up happening is they they collapse their lives. They tie their sense of self-worth completely to their jobs. Their jobs become the pillar of their identity. And they develop all these incredibly hard to shed habits of, you know, how to work and what's expected of them and what they need to do that will follow them around throughout their career and slowly burn them out. Yeah. You talk about how precarious work is. And I thought it was really interesting in the book how you make the point that Flexible working, we think it's this kind of new concept, but actually flexible working is something that's been growing throughout organizations for a number of years now. I'd love you to talk about that a little bit more about what flexibility has been and what really it should be in the future. Yeah, I think flexibility is, it's incredibly one-sided, right? It is something that a company does on behalf of its shareholders, on behalf of its own success, its relationship to its market and its broader ecosystem. A good example of this is is a lot of companies in you know like the 1970s during some of the economic downturns in the 1980s. They said we're very flexible and we're very nimble and we can adapt. And what that means is when times are lean, they can collapse their organizations very quickly. Some of the history is amazing on this. You can see this even in the way that certain firms back then were constructing their offices. Their offices had these like movable partitions and these desks you could jam together or whatever. And the literal physical workspace would expand and contract. But that flexibility is essentially something that a company will say is that they need to do in order to remain competitive. And that flexibility is something that 
is sort of incumbent on the worker to help the employer with. So that mm-hmm. means taking a pay cut, slowly losing some of their benefits and being okay with that and staying on board because of the mission of the company, understanding that at any moment you could be laid off. And the reason why I say it's one-sided is it doesn't ever really happen the the other way. It's very rare that employers are flexible to the lives, the demands, the needs of its employees. I mean, a a good example of this is when the pandemic hit. If you kind of think back to it, there was very little conversation about, okay, we all need to take a little, we need to take a moment here and really be mindful of, of our health and our families. It was mostly just like, carry on, get your job done wherever you have to do it. And, and yes, it's in the home. That was sort of framed as, well, we're allowing you to work from home as flexibility on the end of the employer. But really, it was flexibility on all of us workers. We all did what we had to do to get the job done. And you can see that productivity did not go down during those lockdown months of the pandemic. If anything, it grew a little bit. And I think that this is a good example. It's the worker is always supposed to subsume themselves for the company. And not only that, but be okay with it. And over time, I think that flexibility has led people to feel very precarious. But it's also created this sense that we should be, as workers, just happy to be there, just happy to have the job. Don't complain too much. You've got a job. Uh, and I, I think it breeds a lot of resentment over yeah. time. And and on that resentment, you talk about how we're starting to see this wave of people actively opting out of, of the workplace, leaving organizations. So how do you see this kind of rising dissatisfaction with the precariousness and this sort of false flexibility playing out in the workforce? I think there's a couple of threads here. One kind of critique of modern and especially American work culture uh, and that sort of valuing of productivity above all else and growth is that it is a short-term way to run a business. To you're going to you know burn through your employees. You're going to see a lot of turnover if you don't you know look after the, the, their best interests. If you don't give them a work environment that makes them feel respected and valued and cared for. Um, And so I think what you're seeing now, the chickens come home to roost in some of these organizations, right? Like people will reach their breaking point. And unfortunately, what that means is a lot of them will drop out of the workforce to some degree. I mean, I think you're seeing this during the pandemic with women leaving the workforce in in alarming rates. And that's not because they're exercising their power all the time. A lot of it is I simply, I, I can't keep up with the caregiving duties that are expected. They're dropping out, not, I think, because they want to all the time. And so you're seeing some of that, right? Some of it, though, means trying to take a stand. If you feel like you, your organization does not respect you, some people respond to that with the idea that they have nothing to lose, really. And they are speaking up on behalf of this. And you're seeing this inside organizations where all hands meetings, you have the, the CEO or, or whomever taking questions from the audience. And I'm hearing a lot of this sort of anecdotally in, in my reporting, both from people in executive positions and people lower on the rungs. They'll open up the floor to questions or they'll mention their new paid leave program. And someone will stand up and say, this is unacceptable. This is offensive. 
and, and they'll have their receipts, they'll have the, the facts, the numbers they'll confront. Th- that type of righteous boldness is, is somewhat new in a lot of these organizations. So I think you see it that way. The most interesting part of this, I think, is, and I don't want to generalize too much, but some of what I and other people have seen from the Gen Z and some of mm. the newest entrants into the workforce is a, like a broader skepticism of the entire sort of element of a career. And this is what I think is extremely fascinating. They have watched their parents go through a financial crisis. They've graduated from college into the pandemic in some senses. They have seen the real precarity of the working world. They've seen the fact that maybe their grandparents are able to retire very comfortably, but their parents maybe aren't going to be able to retire at an early age. And I think some of the people I've talked to have said, we surveyed this whole landscape. We see all these people who have come before us be basically miserable with what they're doing. And looking at this, is, is this what we want? Do we want to work and give the best years of our lives and ourselves and everything we have to these companies who aren't really loyal to us? for 40, 45 years, 50 years, Mm -hmm. and then at the very end, take this little bit of time to enjoy life for ourselves. That seems like a bad deal, is what some of these people have told us. And and I don't know if that is just something that will fade as people get sort of ground down by being in the workforce longer. But I think that it's a small idea, but it's very profound. It's disagreeing with the bargain of, of a modern career. I was interested, how has technology helped to shift the mindset of a generation? I think broadly speaking, there are ways in which the experience of growing up with the internet has maybe caused people to to be more aware of other people's you know, surroundings, because you're connected to everyone, they can see a lot more of sort of the, the inequality, the BS. You know, I don't think that a lot of them, at least the people that, that I'm talking, revere the, you know, the, the tech titans in the same way. I think they see it as part of a system that is just so unequal. I think the, the more people I talk to of that age are looking at modern or late stage capitalism as fundamentally broken and seeing that I don't know that I want to let that system dictate what the rest of my life is going to look like, that that's maybe a bad bargain to enter. If you're going to say that to this day, flexibility has actually been a tool for companies to just improve their bottom line, how actually should it be? What's the vision for you in terms of what true flexibility should look like? Yeah. So one thing that we wanted to do with this book was to try to speak to both employers and employees and try to show the benefits of flexibility. And so what we tried to show executives is that this is in the long-term best interest of companies Mm -hmm. to find new ways to work that are not so completely extractive and that don't burn people out quite in this way, that don't generate this type of resentment. We look at the pandemic as kind of a control experiment, right? And we saw that the world did not shut down. So we see that we are able to do our jobs. It, It wasn't easy for a lot of people, but we see that it can be done. 
So now the idea is how can we take the good parts of what we learned and try to take away <laughs> the negative parts and build a work environment that is adaptable to the myriad ways that everyone works. Everybody works differently, right? There are people who thrive on group dynamics and projects and proximity to people and get a lot of energy that way. And those people should have spaces where they can do collaborative work. But there's a lot of people who are introverted, neurotypical, disabled, you know, just generally need a lot of peace and quiet to concentrate and focus to do their best work. There are people who like both, right? We've been treating the office for so long like it's this neutral space. This is the way that everything has to be. Nine to five, five days a week you go in the office. But it's, it's a human construct and it privileges certain people over other people. And so the idea is, okay, how do we step back and intentionally build organizations that work for lots of different people? And we believe that if you do that, Ultimately, what you are going to be doing is you are going to be listening to your employees because you're going to need their feedback. You're going to need to understand how they best work. You're going to build practices that require employees to listen to other employees because if you're in this distributed hybrid working world, there's going to be more friction involved. So you're going to need to understand how to meet people where they are. And what that does is it allows employees to treat their fellow employees like human beings and not like cogs in a machine or endpoints for productivity. It's all about very small intentional choices that you can make. But what ends up happening is I think overall a a more equitable, more efficient style of work and one in which people aren't bound to these physical locations all the time if they don't want to be. And it gives people the chance to start to construct their lives if you're not bound to that space around things that are meaningful to them that aren't just about work. So I completely hear you. And it's really interesting to see this trend, this kind of movement towards sort of slow business. It makes a lot of sense from um, the employee perspective. But how does it fit within a shareholder capitalist system? I mean, how can you as a CEO marry the two? I think we don't even know because very few people have have tried. I really want to be grounded here. Like I don't want to be super naive and say don't be competitive. I understand that there's market forces at work in a you know global system and you got to compete with China and all all of these types of things. But I think that there's the, what gives me hope is there's research that's come out, right? I mean, there's the research on the 4-day work week that shows that there's an increase <laughs> in productivity. There is an increase in performance from a lot of people. There's an increase in satisfaction, a decrease in turnover. There's a lot of scientific research on the ways that the brain works that show that this constant grind, working extremely long hours, not taking enough time off, it's really detrimental to productivity, to worker creativity. There's this book by this science writer, Annie Murphy-Paul, called The Extended Mind. And it basically says that for so long we've thought of our brains and compared them to computers, right? You just give it 
the inputs. It doesn't matter the set or the setting or how long the computer's been on. It just runs the program and gets you the same output every time. But the human brain is so much more varied, right? It depends on how much sleep we've gotten, where we are. Are we in a noisy environment? Are we stressed out? And the mind is often often at its highest processing capacity for creative and original thought when we're not directly working on the project. That's why great ideas come to people in the shower, on walks. I think that has profound impacts on the way that we can become productive, on the way that we can be innovative, that we can build, dream up new things. And I don't think we've really tried that in the modern capitalist society. Yeah. That, that's what I would you know, say to people as a counter is, do you know what your workforce would be like if they had a little more time, if they were a little more rested? Like, mm. do, you, do, you, do you really know what that looks like? And I think a lot of people, if they were being honest, would say that no, they don't because they're too afraid to see what's on the other side of that. In the book, you move on to talk about how culture also has to be redesigned and how good company culture is actually one that's lived rather than just slapped on value boards and paraded around the company. I'd love to hear some examples of companies that are doing really well, like how you've seen good company culture really start to shift and how there is this new kind of idea of what culture can be like in business. I think it it's still, you know, early in terms of people shifting throughout the pandemic on this. So one example of really good company culture that I've liked just comes simply from honesty and moving through the pandemic, keeping your employees abreast of what you're doing the entire time and getting the input. So uh, Dropbox has done a really good job with this. They basically said they looked at how their workforce performed over the course of the pandemic, and then they surveyed them and asked what the, you know they liked and disliked about all of this. And quickly came to the conclusion that their employees were happier working remotely, that they were more productive working remotely. And so they switched completely from a generally in-person company to a remote first company. But they were very intentional about this. And they said, some of you, this is not the company that you, you know, signed up for when you got hired. We're going to help you find another gig or help figure out how to make your job work for you but this is the value of the company going forward. And here are the changes we're going to make. And they changed a lot of the ways that they're treating their workspaces. They got rid of a lot of their real estate. They're converting their offices into these episodic workspaces where you basically come in to do collaborative work. What I really like about it is they're also saying, we're going to get this wrong at times. This We're going to make a change and it's not going to work. And you're going to tell us because this is a new shift and we want to do this and bring you all on board as best we can. And I think that's really important. I think this is a really transitory time. And the way that you build trust in a company environment, in a company culture, is by having the leadership model vulnerability. One way yep. to model vulnerability is to say, we don't know what the future holds, but we do know we have an opportunity here. And we're going to have a very long dialogue with you and figure this out as a way to bring everyone together. Hey Charlie, I just want to ask you to sum up where you think technology plays a role in all of this, because obviously we couldn't be doing it without it, <laughs> and perhaps how it benefits us, but are there also negatives that you're aware of? So obviously the technology that has allowed us to connect in this way 
and not in person is what underwrites this whole flexible work movement. But traditionally, technology has played an equally negative role in this, I, I believe. If you look at the history of workplace technologies, so many of them promise to free up more time in order for you to get things done quicker and then do the things you ostensibly you care about. And that's not the way that we've adopted them in practice. Practically, what, what they have done is they've freed up more time for us to do work. And I think that is the trap, the cycle that has to break, right? Email was supposed to kill the memo and the culture of passing around tons of memos and being flooded with all this you know, information. Slack and Microsoft Teams and all those chat apps were built as email killers. And if you look at your inbox now, email's not dead. We've just layered something else on top of it. So the balance that we've never really been able to strike is to leverage the technology for what it's supposed to do which is to make our lives easier, to free us up, to give us more time. Yeah, the reason that we haven't had that is because we, because of this type of work culture that we've instilled in ourselves, this productivity obsession. So if we can let go of parts of that as a culture, then we can actually use the technology in the way that it should be intended, which is to take burden away from us and give us time for the things that we value and care about. Charlie being a fantastic guest on the Freedom Matters podcast send our best wishes to Anne I'm sorry that she wasn't able to make it but yeah we really enjoyed speaking to you thank you very much yeah thanks for having me I appreciated this thank you for joining us on Freedom Matters if you like what you hear then subscribe on your favourite platform and until next time we wish you happy healthy and productive days